Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Welcome back to Seven Heads, Ten Horns. This is Klaus doing a solo pod. A little bit unused to just talking to myself, staring at a screen, but we're going to work through it together. Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this to myself and to you? I guess this is just what I do. I don't know. Like, we're just going to learn to deal with it together. You know, it'll be fine. But I am doing this because we've had an ongoing discussion this season about race, ethnicity, and demonology in late ancient Christian traditions. And I was teaching a book about the curse of Ham or Noah's curse uh, for a course I teach on theology and prison and in carceral logics in Christian countries. And I was struck by some of the things I was reading about this story of the curse of Ham and Noah's curse and a lot of the late ancient Christian antecedents for the tradition. And I wanted to share some of that now. But of course, first, I want to give a little bit of background on what it is I'm talking about. You know, that's always good front and center sort of technique. So what I'm talking about comes in Genesis 9. This is the root story. And Noah has just survived with his family, the deluge, the flood that wipes out most of creation except for the menagerie of animals that managed to pack onto the ark to escape. And basically, Noah makes a deal with God. Things are cool. He invents winemaking and drinking, gets shwasted, passes out drunk, gets naked somehow, and then his son Ham, great name, sees this and thinks, mm, little weird, little noteworthy here. Later, a tradition will develop that has Ham mocking his father, uh, but it doesn't actually say this in the text at all. It just says that he saw that he was naked. Ham goes, tells his two brothers, Japheth and Shem, that this has happened, and they go in, and they're kind of like, you can sort of imagine them rolling their eyes and they go in and they cover up their dad and they sort of bend over backwards, walk backwards to make sure they don't see anything or embarrass their dad. And Noah wakes up and he says, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed by the Lord my God be Shem and let Canaan be his slave. May God make space for Japheth, and let him live in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. Now, you might be wondering, who the F is Canaan? We've been talking about Ham, and Japheth, and Shem, and, and Noah. It's one of Ham's sons, people who end up settling in the land, the land of Canaan, that Yahweh will gift to the children of Israel. And yeah, they get wiped out in a genocide in that process. So this whole lowering the standard and dignity of Canaan is setting this up rather neatly. Other sons of Ham include Cush, 
Uh, the Cushites in the Bible are the people who settle in the Horn of Africa, and also the Egyptians. One of the sons of Cush is this person, Nimrod, which sometimes is, it's like an insult, right? Great pixie song. Uh who is identified in the Bible as a great and mighty hunter, the Bible's first true warrior. Interesting that Cain doesn't get that distinction. I guess murdering your brother, being a fratricide, is, is not sort of have the same honorary distinction as being a warrior, as Nimrod is. Um, later traditions, and this, this was especially popular with pro-slavery theologians of the U.S. South, make Nimrod responsible for the construction of the Tower of Babel. And when that project of idolatrous political world unity goes awry the primal language this is what a lot of these people will be talking about think the primal language of hebrew stops being the language of everyone there's this confusion and this is a story of the peoples being broken up and scattered and remember last time in the augustine episode one of augustine's ideas about the church was that it's going to reconstitute this primal unity that reigned and was possible and has been shattered through idolatrous political projects. Okay, okay. Uh, that's not that's nowhere in the text, but yeah, and you know that that Nimrod's responsible or that Ham's responsible, but this is sort of part of the tradition that was in the background for the book I was reading about pro-slavery uses of the Ham, the curse. And the book is Noah's Curse by Stephen Haynes. And so that book and talking about it with my students really got me moving and thinking about different places where demonology and this curse business line up. So let's get back into the idea of this curse for a second. Who is cursed exactly? So it's the curse of Ham. That's how it's sort of popularly known. But Ham himself isn't cursed, but just one of his sons, as I mentioned, Canaan. He has other sons, but Canaan is the only one who gets named. And we've been talking a lot about patristic theologians like Augustine, like Gregory of Nyssa, and the rest of the Cappadocian fathers, these sorts of people, Irenaeus. People like this completely abandon the nuance of it just being Canaan who gets cursed and assert that Ham is cursed, in many cases to slavery. So Originally, it's like, oh, your son is going to be cursed to slavery. Your descendants are going to be cursed to slavery. You're going to have a, your line is going to have a, meet a bitter end or something like that. Um, but as Christians start to try to make sense of this, it's sort of, there's a slippage and it's, it's Ham himself who's also cursed. And this is not just like a Mediterranean, European centric thing. This is also true in Ethiopia, where the story of Ham's curse is duplicated in a very similar way in the national epic, the Kebra uh, Nagasat. For these interpreters who see Ham cursed as well as Canaan, it's Ham, Canaan, and all the descendants of Ham who are cursed. So this includes Egypt, it includes Cush. And this is not just a Christian, you know, it's crazy Christian racism stuff. This is also um, present in the rabbinical writings in the early text of rabbinical Judaism, and even some, even Islamic sources too. The assumption that all of these family members of Ham, all of this whole subline of, of Noah's family, that they're all slaves becomes so dominant that even though it's nowhere literally in the text in any kind of apparent way, 
it's taken for granted in patristic and rabbinical commentaries. So let's talk a little bit more about the idea of the curse here. And curses are interesting. We use the word curse in sort of normal colloquial English to you know, curse someone out, to swear at someone. Cursing, swearing, they all kind of have this archaic sense to, to curse someone the way Noah is cursing Ham's son Canaan implies that there's some power to this utterance that it, it it's a, it's doing how to do something with words and jail austin speech act theory kind of stuff like it's it's not just i really don't like what you did i really disapprove of you it's like you are cursed uh, there's there's a degree of difference there maybe more than a few degrees and it's linked it's sort of opposite is blessing again something that it seems archaic or reserved for the the sphere of, of religion, though I, I guess you hear it more in certain different vernaculars. Uh, but the idea of of blessing again, like having power with words to do something good, something holy, something something beautiful and nurturing for someone else through through a, a performative, through a speech act. Um, interesting to see these sort of definitive moments of sacred scripture as these performative moments i think so what does the what is what is what do patristic theologians make of the curse people we've been looking at recently so our buddy augustine of hippo uh, sees the story in genesis 9 as an allegory for the passion big surprise you when christians look at genesis they're like i'm looking for jesus i'm looking for the passion where is it where is it? And so Augustine reads this as an allegory for the passion because it's a betrayal by a family member. And Noah being stripped naked is somehow evocative of Jesus being stripped down and having his clothing and personal effects uh, divided by lots and cast off by lots. Um, being naked, sort of stripped down, you know, like Jesus on the cross imagery. <laughs> I love this though. It's like Noah gets wasted and it's like he's a Christ figure. It's like Paul Newman and Cool Hand Luke. <laughs> it's, come on. You got shwasted. Uh, and then, yeah, right. So I'll leave you to fill in the gaps here. Dear listener, Ham is, of course, then standing in for the Jews, who are the family members of Jesus, who are betraying him. Great, 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 great. Um, so the big sin for Augustine is that Ham draws attention to Noah's nakedness and shame. Not totally sure how that continues the anti-Semitic line of tropological interpretation, but okay, we'll go with it. It's about shaming your dad. It's about creating some sort of awkward scene in a family. Um, I, I guess that's what's going on here. There's another interesting way in which this gets into the awkward sexuality of the whole scenario. A little bit later, the 
the patristic theologian John uh, Chrysostom, man with the golden mouth, golden voice. Another patristic figure we haven't quite gotten to yet. He reads this and he sees that the curse is directed at something not even mentioned at all, like even more so than Ham being cursed. This is like, he really blows it out of the park here. He sees it as the curse is, the curse is for Canaan and not Ham. The theory for, for John Chrysostom is that Ham conceived of Canaan while being on the ark. He was having sex on the ark. And when Ham then, he's fathering a child. And so when Ham then disrespects his father, it's sort of this patriarchal logic here, then the curse unfurls. Then, then it's like, oh, like you were getting up to something that you should not have been doing on the ark because I guess it was, it was a, a, a sexual purity zone or something. I, there, instead of the no smoking sign popping on in the old airplanes, it was like, it was the no the no sex sign. I don't know. Um, that's what John Chrysostom thinks we should make of this. He is at least paying attention to the fact that it's Canaan who's cursed and not Ham directly, getting back to what I was just saying. And that's interesting because Chrysostom rightly identifies the fact that God has just blessed Noah and all of his sons. And so Chrysostom's like, well, if you just blessed Noah and by extension Ham, then he can't curse him in the same breath. So the punishment has to be sort of indirect. And then I'm going to hypothesize this illicit scene of a conjugal union that happened on the Muriel's Ark. Um, and, and that's how that's how we're going to tie the whole thing together. So the kid who's conceived on the boat, Canaan, who will then who's in, whose descendants will then be there when Joshua and the children of Israel arrived to uh, to eliminate them, um, is the victim of the curse. So really sweet move on God's part to uh, to make sure that <laughs> the right person carries the blame there. Okay, enough said about that. Back to Augustine, of course, because what else do we do on this pod but sort of go on ad nauseum about the theological maze winding of, of St. Augustine. In other places, Augustine will also show that Ham can stand in for something completely different from the Jews. He's like, well, I've been, I've been Jew baiting enough. I need to find someone else here. And so he reaches out to strike a much more diffuse tribe, if you will, of antagonists, heretics. And so this is important. This introduces us to the etymological analysis of Ham's name that plays a huge role in making Ham into a slave and also making Ham black in the patristic rabbinical tradition. So what Augustine says is Ham, that is to say hot in the Hebrew language, who was the middle son of Noah and, as it were, separated himself from both and remained between them, I guess he's talking about the other brothers, neither belonging to the first fruits of Israel nor to the fullness of the Gentiles. So he's, he's, he's aligning uh, Josephus and Shem with, with one with Israel and one with the Gentiles. What does he signify but the tribe of heretics, hot with the spirit, not of patience, but of impatience, with which the breasts of heretics are wont to blaze? and with which they disturb the peace of the saints. So, some ways, Ham can be read as uh, Jews who don't see the light of the gospel. In other ways, they can be any heretic, no matter what ethnicity. He were, it's a big tent here. 
It can be any heretic who is characterized in this sort of etymological reading of ham, what ham is supposed to mean in Hebrew for Augustine as, as being heated, hot with spirit. So the one word that people doing this etymological analysis of ham come to is, is heat. Another one they come to is blackness or darkness. And this is, of course, a favorite governing assumption for the racist reads, especially in the antebellum USA, um, when uh, the, the slaveocracies, theocrats, were trying to explain why everything was right and good in uh, chattel slavery of kidnapped people. And I was, as I said before, I was teaching this in a class on prisons and theology, and it was amazing to me. They would again and again they would come back to how orderly the South's slaveocracy was in contrast to the unruly, filthy, unkept jails and prisons of the North. So these sort of carceral institutions are being compared of of chattel slavery and the surveillance state, the carceral state. Interesting. Anyway, so. There is a scholar, David Goldenberg, who is looking at the curse of Ham, and he's trying to figure out how these different etymologies take shape. He's looking at heat. He's looking at blackness. Comes up with some pretty interesting stuff. So basically what Goldenberg explains is that there are a few different sounds and letters that resemble like an H sound or a H sound in Hebrew. And these letters... The letter uh, het, for example, is actually merging together two distinct phonemes that are roots for different words. And so the one root is like a hum, hum, which is like black, or hum, which is heat. And this is these two, so the, those two, those two H sounds. Like there's etymologies that can be like, oh, like if you put these letters together, you get dark for, with this first letter het. Or you put these ones together, you get heat. Ham was actually a different H-related phoneme. And the distinction between these phonemes was lost. And so when scholars later were looking at ham, they kept seeing, they kept looking at it and seeing, oh, these are the roots for dark. These are the roots for heat. But what Goldenberg's explaining through this sort of philological research into the Hebrew language is like, actually, there was an older root and an older sound that's actually different from those ones. And that's that's where ham comes from. Ham doesn't come at all from darkness and heat. And this is important because when, when um, Augustine, for example, talking about like the heatedness of the heretics, he's getting it from that idea. And when the racist theologians are like, oh, ham is the father of of our, our African chattel slavery, they're getting it from that. And so all like this, this desire to see heatedness, sort of your hothead, you are, can't control yourself. You can see how this starts to get racialized very quickly. And, and, and the blackness or the burntness, all this comes out of a, a, an understandable but inaccurate etymological analysis of these Hebrew uh, roots. And like, obviously, like, understandable, I mean, like, you can see the thought process behind the root confusion, not really the thought process behind the slavery apology. And an important way to think about that and how we get the, the sort of the two roots coming together and how they start to become as part of this racial logic uh, is in the 7th century, the churchmen 
intellectual, historian, etymologist par excellence, Isidore, Isidore of Seville, divides up what was for him the known world according to the progeny of Noah in what is referred to as the TO map or the OT map. It basically means the Orbis Terrarum map, the, 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 sort of the globe or the orb of, of the Earth's. In this map, Shem and his descendants populate Asia. Japheth gets Europe, which seems like pretty small beer compared to the other two major continents. And, and Ham gets Africa. So deliberately or inadvertently, this is all setting up a hierarchy of humans. If we consider the way that patristic and rabbinical theologians and exegetes turn Ham into a shameful and enslaved outcast of humanity. Because as I mentioned before, some people are like, oh, well, it's it's Canaan who is the one enslaved. And, but the, the popular thing to do is be like, well, Ham also becomes a slave. I said a moment ago that there was the assumption, the assumption of Ham's blackness like wasn't really widely shared in patristic literature, but there's always an exception. And this one's really important because it's it's a, a an exception, I think, of great influence uh, coming from Origin of Alexandria, who we we potted about recently. Origen, as we've seen already in this podcast, associated the dark skin of people like the Ethiopians with sinfulness. Um, yeah. And it seems like he's applying this association to Ham and his descendants. Um, and we go like, well, how did he get to that, right? Well, we have Origen is able to sort of get into this confusion of the two uh, H sounds the, of heat and, and blackness that are being read into, into Ham. So an important context for Origen's application of this confusion is when he is describing the ancient Egyptians in the context of explaining how the children of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. And I'll just read what Origen says here from one of his homilies. It really is very telling. He writes, look at the origin of the Egyptian race and you will discover that their father Ham who had laughed at his father's nakedness, man, they couldn't get over this, deserved a judgment of this kind, that his son Canaan would be a servant to his brothers, in which case the condition of bondage would prove the wickedness of his conduct. Not without merit, therefore, does the discolored posterity imitate the ignobility of the race. So yeah, the pigmentation, the idea of dark skinnedness as bound together with slavery and with the progeny of ham really coming together in origins description of the egyptians and he's writing about the egyptians as descendants of ham again we i mentioned this the egyptians aren't cursed in the the sort of literal reading of the curse of ham it's just canaan or, uh, Origen is, is seeing this as applying to the rest of Ham's descendants and to Ham himself. He is making a number of assumptions here. Uh, one I want to touch on is that the pharaohs who ruled Egypt are not themselves Egyptians, but are outsiders who subjugate the Egyptians as they would a like subhuman race of people. And he contrasts the pharaoh's ability to subjugate the Egyptians who go peacefully because they're sort of, they're, they're in a stupor. They're not really at the height of their powers. As a race, they are, they are inheriting this kind of, I don't know, irresponsibility and 
like lack of having their shit together that, that he sees with Ham. And he's contrasting this with the kind of spiritedness, the rebelliousness, the fieriness of the Hebrews who have this different genealogy. So the link between blackness, heat, and Ham are coming together even as early as the patristic literature of the third century, which is quite a bit sooner than the, the TO map of uh, Isidore of Seville by four centuries or so. But like what else goes together in this matrix of blackness, the Hamites and slavery? Well, let me tell you, it's one of the favorite topics of this podcast, which is idolatry, superstition, and demon worship of course. So as I mentioned, I got into this topic by teaching a book about the curse of Ham, or the book is called Noah's Curse by Stephen Haynes. And it's really useful for getting a look at the antebellum U.S. slaveocracy and the theoretical apparatus that apologized for slavery within it. Um, At some point, though, Haynes starts talking about some of the links between these uh, racial, racist theologians who are trying to apologize for slavery with the curse of Ham. And he starts talking about patristic authors like Clement of Alexandria and Clement of Alexandria's understanding of Ham. And my little ears pricked up and I was like, whoa, Clement, that's Origen's teacher. And I was seeing this link, right, because we know that Origen has this kind of racialized stuff. But it turns out, that Haynes had gotten a little bit confused about which Clement was responsible for what set of books. Um, Because the person he thinks is Clement of Alexandria is actually the author, the pseudonymous author of what's called the pseudo-Clementine literature. Um, And this is is literature that comes out a few hundred years after Clement of Alexandria. The tradition's still old, but it's, it's a little bit more... It's, it's not quite as neat as, as uh, Haynes has it. The pseudo-Clementine literature is supposed to be like the adventures of, of uh, Clement I, who was a, an early pope in late first century Rome. And these are like romances about his adventures with St. Peter and how he becomes pope and that kind of stuff. So it's like coming out of like the fourth or fifth centuries. So this is like what Haynes gets out of Clement's work, who he misstates. Um, He writes, in his recognitions, pseudo-Clement, that's I'm putting the pseudo there, wrote that Ham unhappily discovered the magical act and handed down the instruction of it to one of his sons, who was called Mesraim, from whom the race of the Egyptians and Babylonians and Persians are descended. Pseudo-Clement maintains that Ham developed magic in order, quote, to be esteemed a god among his contemporaries. Though he was consumed by a fiery miracle of his own creation, Ham's magic remains the source of diverse and erratic superstitions that plague the world. In another place, Clement traces most of the world's nascent evils to Ham and his posterity. So yeah, this is this is uh, this is a lot. Like he writes, in the thirteenth generation after the creation, when the second of Noah's three sons had done an injury to his father, man, they can never get over it, and had been cursed by him. He brought the condition of slavery upon his posterity. In the 14th generation, one of the cursed progeny first erected an altar to demons for the purpose of magical arts and offered their bloody sacrifices. In the 15th generation, for the first time, men set up an idol and worshipped it. So, yeah. So, like, of course, here we're getting into the meat and potatoes of the podcast. The curse of Ham 
is directed at a person who is one of the first idolaters, one of the first per- people to create a religion or cults out of demon worship. Some things never change, I guess. So I mentioned Nimrod as part of the Ham AI genealogy before. And so in the recognitions, and, and this this is like sort of the link, I think, between the this uh, pseudo-Clementine literature and like 19th century slaveocratic uh, theological apologies for slavery. So right after it's like this link to Nimrod and he's presented as like an idolatrous heresiarch political tyrant in pseudo-Clementine literature who teaches the Persians fire worship. So like doing some ethnographic accounting for different religions in the world here. Other places in the pseudo-Clementine literature specifically named Zoroaster. Uh, and if you want more on Zoroaster, go back to the amazing deep dive we did on whether the Persian uh, religion, whether Zoroastrianism, whether basically the idea of an apocalyptic war against demons came out of the Iranian influence on Judaism. Um, check that one out. But yeah, so Pseudo-Clement is saying that Zoroaster gets his start from Nimrod, that Nimrod actually is the one who teaches this off-brand demonic religion, pseudo-religion in, in the eyes of Pseudo-Clement, to uh, one of the uh, patriarchs of, 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 a, of like a great religion in the world. So this is what uh, Pseudo-Clement writes uh, about um, Zoroaster. He therefore, being much and frequently atten- intent upon the stars... And wishing to be esteemed a god among them. Man, this is just what they said about Ham. Keeps, they keep saying the same thing over again here. Get some new material. Um, anyway, he began to draw forth, as it were, certain sparks from the stars and show them to men. I love that. He began to draw forth, as it were, certain sparks from the stars. Like, did, well, did he or didn't he? Like, they're like qualifying. Like, so he was able to get sparks out of the stars? That sounds awesome. <laughs> he was showing these to other people in order that the rude and ignorant might be astonished. So this guy's like a sort of a, like a cheap trick charlatan person. Um, to be astonished as with the miracle. And desiring to increase this estimation of him, he attempted these things again and again until he was set on fire and consumed by the demon himself, whom he accosted with too great importunity. Huh. So Zoroaster, he had a good scam going. He kept doing the star spark trick one too many times until he lit himself on fire. And a demon's responsible for that. And so Zoroaster is consumed alive by the demon. He's trying to hoodwink these uh, rubes of the Persian plateau into, into giving him money and power, I guess. That's, 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 what we're, that's what we're at here. I think the fact that demonology makes it into this genealogy like obviously not super shocking i thought for a moment when i was reading through this stuff that like we were getting an alternate history of of idolatry and of other religions it was like oh like ham made me do it. it's like the conjuring for ham made me do it instead of the devil made me do it and uh eventually they're like no we have ham is responsible but like ham they have to tie ham and his descendants to demons after all um, and so like, right, like not super shocking here, but I thought it was worth drawing out that we're getting these associations between the demonic, between blackness, between slavery, and these are all being bundled together. And this is happening a long time before we get the North Atlantic slave trade. 
and the uh, brutal domination of antebellum uh, U.S. slavocracy. But you're seeing how some of these threads were there to be drawn together and stitched up into the horrible garment that that was. So just to sort of wrap this up a bit, the curse would develop through the medieval period and into modernity, taking on these racialized layers as as uh, sort of nascent colonialism and uh, capitalism started to push these European kingdoms out in search of loot. Slave owners and their religious ideologues in the U.S. would use ham to symbolize the degradation of Africans in need of Christian civilizing, drawing on the uh, Isidore of Seville uh, T.O. chart. Um, And so, yeah, like, in their view, West Africans needed civilizing and were at the same time incapable of reaching an advanced level. So they needed to be taught, like, the rudiments of some kind of slave religion that was like a shallow imitation of Christianity, but like that couldn't go too deep. Uh, So this is like obviously a very convenient mythology to justify uh, slaveocracy. After the civil war, Nimrod, the descendant of Ham through some of these constructions, again, not like in a totally, yeah, like it's, it's, it's the linkage is, is, uh, is made more clear by people who want to malign Nimrod and Ham. But anyway, Nimrod, the descendant of Ham stands as the idolatrous, violent, politician creating pseudo-civilizations and like those those pseudo-civilizations like reconstruction was right into that as was desegregation and civil rights movement but also like the post-world war ii onset of international bodies that could impinge on u.s internal affairs like the united nations one worldism smacked of the antichrist political dominance for white segregationist christians and so it's interesting to see that there's also black theologians in the 19th century who are making use of this story of Ham and reading it against the grain of white supremacist hegemony. Uh, there's, there's more to be said about that. There's also the great writer Zora Neale Hurston, who would go on to write a play that embraces Ham's blackness and reverses the racial hierarchy of the slaveocracy. The agricultural and urbanizing civilization of Shem and Japhet appear in the play as the beginning of a long road that leads to the destruction of the human species. Hmm, no comment. And the play is called The First One from 1927. I think we'll be getting back into demonization and the diabolic when we're discussing their uses in white supremacy as we sort of move on down the line of the chronology of the show. It was talking about settler colonialism and the slave trade and everything. Uh, But I wanted to foreshadow that a bit while pulling out some of these new threads of racialized demonology in the patristic authors we've been working on lately. So yeah, like that's it. That's it for tonight. That's um, I'm like recording this in the the bleakness of that is November. Um, But yeah, thanks for listening. Um, Be on the lookout. We're we're on the the verge of wrapping up this season set of patristic theology. Uh, which feels like a major accomplishment. Uh, We're really happy with it. But yeah, thanks so much for listening. Remember to, you know, do the whole rigmarole of of the five stars on Apple Podcasts, leaving a comment, reaching out on social media. That's all awesome. We really appreciate everyone listening. And yeah, uh, see you next time. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Horde, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you.